as was already mentioned just a bit earlier by Roger at, at the outset of the announcements, we are appreciative that all of us have been blessed today with the opportunity to gather yet again on this afternoon hour. Thankful indeed we are for the opportunity and the health that God has given to each of us and that we might in fact have the mentality and disposition to pursue what he would have to be pleasing in his sight as we gather to render worship unto certainly the one who is very deserving of the worship that we would offer unto him. As we continue tonight our series of lessons dealing with the Bible on the one hand and science on the other, we again have set before ourselves the appreciation to consider that science in its pristine wonder really is a testimony to the majesty of God. For as we see about us in the material world, so many things truly are a wonderful idea that leads us to appreciate God's handiwork, His infinite nature, and the character of what He has fashioned and what He has made. As you can see in my brief attempt to review the lessons we've seen in the series to this point, this is the eighth lesson in the series, and very briefly, throughout those previous seven, we have interestingly considered, first of all, what is science, and how does it stand in relation to the Bible? The opening lesson, in fact, of the series dealt with that subject, did it not? From that point, we began to look at the nature of astronomy and then biology. In each one of those instances, we notice that even in the Word of God, there are things that are proclaimed that fall in the heading of those subjects, and the Bible is right, absolutely without error, even in proclamations concerning both biology and astronomy. From that point, we look at oceanography and meteorology as well, following that, physics and chemistry. In all of them, we have noticed that from time to time, God's Spirit did state things that touched those subjects, and it was breathtaking, wasn't it, to see the correctness of the Scriptures set forth even in matters where scientists recently have found things and discovered things that the Bible had stated all along. Following our discussion of those matters, we turned our attention also to dinosaurs. In fact, that was the most recent lesson last Lord's Day evening. And when we studied those, we even found that many of the things stated by scientists, especially those of old, of old world evolutionary ideas, are very different than what the scriptures have to say on that subject. Tonight, as we come to the eighth installment in the series, might I ask us to look at a, something that we really haven't touched on to this point in the series, namely the human body itself. I believe we'll probably use this to close the series, perhaps this week and one more week, or two at most, I think. And in that way, we will kind of wrap up the series and strive to see, even in the frame of human nature, the absolute testimony of the creative hand of God. I think as we look at these things, we will be again amazed at what the Scripture set forth and what even scientists of late have come to discover, even in relation to the nature of the human body. With well, that kind of idea set before us, might I ask that we begin the lesson tonight by looking at some initial features and concepts with respect to this, this idea, and then we'll, as always, strive to let the Bible speak to us on the nature of these subjects. With well, that idea said, might I point out one of the texts along the way that, in fact, was read a little bit earlier tonight. The lesson text taken from the 139th Psalm. To build up to that point, could I ask each of us at least to briefly contemplate 
that just as we have turned our attention to astronomy and looked at the distant heavens, if you will, and we've looked at the mighty oceans in the brief segment on oceanography, and we have looked at the nature, say, of chemistry and physics and the far-reaching aspects of them, it might be tempting in the busy kinds of lives that we often lead to bypass the frame that is each one of us. The nature of the human being itself, myself and yourself, I would suggest we certainly would do well not to end the series without giving some reflection to this marvel that God has fashioned. As we seek to do that, might we pause and note the intricacy and the complexity and in fact the complicated character that goes on in your body and in mine. In fact, all I need to do is make a very simple kind of statement. As on a cold, snowy day, Cannot one at least remember perhaps being at grandmother's house and wrapping your hands around a nice warm cup of hot chocolate? Just as I make that statement, think of all the things that your body has had to do so that you could rightfully imagine and visualize what I just described. And yet likely every one of us could envision something either like it or very close to it. Notice what God has allowed to take place. First, you could hear me. Not only that, I was able to speak. Those two things are dramatic capabilities of the human frame. Can all animals do that? Obviously not. Furthermore, you have a brain that is far higher and far more intricate in its capability than any animal, bar none. Furthermore, think about the nature of some of the features of the human frame and the human body. I'd submit to you, we'll have opportunity to visit some of all of these. One opening thought, though, should not be passed too quickly. If in the aspect of the human body, in any of its workings, we discover what appears to be obvious design, does that not imply that there must have been a designer? When something is designed, we each seem to learn pretty early on that there had to have been a designer if something testifies and manifests the fact that it is designed. Should it be any different with respect to the human body? The reason I bring that up is, as you well know, evolution says something very different. That despite the fact that the body may manifest design, they claim that it happened by chance, it came about through random mutations by virtue of natural selection, and that there was no designer. At least that's what some of our students are taught in their various biology classes that they may take. Notice again, though, that which shows design necessarily requires a designer. Consider some passages that just get us to think a bit about the nature of the human frame. The 139th Psalm, verse number 14. There the psalmist, though again written roughly a thousand years before the birth of Christ, the psalmist said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that... My soul knoweth right well. As the psalmist uttered those majestic words in recognition of God's greatness, he said, I will praise thee. And on the particular mind of the psalmist on that occasion was the greatness of the fashion of what God had made. I will praise thee. Why? For I am fearfully, wonderfully made. The Hebrew word, in fact, means marvelously. It means that which stretches the imagination to appreciate the extent thereof. 
the characteristic of those kinds of things leads me to bring a few other passages that we ought to at least consider. Let's revisit, in fact, the statement of God's creative activity with respect to the human body and with respect to the human being. On the sixth day of God's creative activity, even as we've noted more than once in this series of lessons on the Bible and science, we remember that God fashioned the land-dwelling creatures, those animals that walk upon the earth, upon the actual dry land. And in so doing, though, we well remember God's creative work on that day was not concluded. In verse 26 of that noble opening chapter of the Holy, of a, of the Holy Bible, we could still see the statement, Let us make man in our image. We have noted it more than once, but that was a unique statement with respect to his creation, not with respect to the plants on day three, not with respect to the animal life on day five, and not with respect to the other kinds of animal life on day six. That had been stated with respect to no part of his creation until mankind. Let us make man in our image. Immediately, we might well ask, what does it mean then to say that Adam was made in the image of God? What does it mean to say that he, and not any of the other aspects of the life that God had fashioned, was made in the image of God? May I submit to you that a number of things might be suggested, but I don't believe we'll have too difficult a time appreciating to an extent some of the features that are characteristic of that description. First of all, to be made in the image of God would allow the characteristic that you and I as human beings have been given the marvelous capability by God of exhibiting some of the characteristics which God exhibits. Certainly we can appreciate that He is infinite in every regard and so we cannot exhibit them to the degree He can. But just as surely as the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. You and I have the capability of love. We can love our spouse and we can love our children. In fact, we can even have a love for the lost souls of those who need to respond to the gospel. We can love them and we can go to great extent to urge their response in an appropriate way. But in addition to love, we can exhibit compassion care, we can have a genuine consideration of concern for someone else who is distraught, oppressed, afflicted, in some way downtrodden. Notice that God reached down a hand to us when we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve one drop of the shed blood of our Savior, and yet He allowed Him to die on the cross for us. Notice the God had an idea of sacrifice. You and I can sacrifice also, can't we? For our spouse, there may be something that that person so dutifully and dearly wants, and we as the mate of that person can sacrifice in order to make that a possibility and in order to bring that about. What about justice? We know God is a God of justice. You and I can at times at least exhibit the means of justice, maybe in the discipline of our children or with respect to other things we may encounter in life. I'd submit that one of the things it means to be made in the image of God is that we have the capability of exhibiting some of the characteristics to some degree that God can. 
But that isn't all that that means. Other passages in the Bible, as we shall shortly see, indicate something else is involved. In fact, to say that you and I are made in the image of God, one of the things that that certainly does not mean is that we look like God. For after all, in John 4, 24, God is a spirit. But we learn in Luke 24, 39, that a spirit hath not flesh and bones. And hence, you and I can't say we physically look like God or that God looks physically like us. We know that's certainly not what that text means. But does it not mean this as well? God is an immortal spirit. God never had a beginning. He'll never have an end. He is infinite and He is eternal. In Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Might we pause to ponder this. Once my existence in yours began in the womb of our mother, the Bible does not hint that we shall ever cease to be. Oh, it's true that if the earth shall stand long enough, that in fact we will die. But that doesn't mean we cease to be. We are an immortal spirit, and our immortal spirit shall dwell one day either in, in eternal heaven or in an eternal hell. But its existence will never cease to be. It shall always be. It shall always exist. And perhaps when the text says that you and I are made in the image and in the likeness of God, one of the ideas, in fact, one of the almost certain ones present, is the concept that you and I are, from this point onward, immortal spirits, never ceasing to be. That characteristic only heightens the thought of how important it is thus to live appropriately, godly, and rightly here, so that when that moment of judgment comes, we'll be prepared to inherit eternal heaven rather than eternal hell. To say that we are made again in the image and in the likeness of God, I mentioned that immortal spirit. Consider with me some passages that state the source of that immortal spirit and thus that opens up the real nature of who and what you and I are. Might we begin in Zechariah 12 verse 1. That noble Old Testament minor prophet there asked a rhetorical question, namely asking the following statement, Is it not God that formeth the spirit of man within him? You and I, admittedly, are able to see the physical body, but quite frankly, we are far, far more than just a physical body. Notice also in Isaiah 42, 5, there again, the prophet Isaiah chimes in in the same refrain. They're affirming that it is God that giveth man the, his spirit. Do we not read in Hebrews 12, verse 9, the rhetorical question, that is not God the Father of our spirits? To say all of that is to highlight very powerfully and emphatically the fact that you and I are immortal spirits. Paul, in fact, didn't he look forward to laying off the old mortal frame that was him and look forward to being with Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 4? And even near the, in the closing book that he ever wrote, as far as we know, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8, he said, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. In light of these opening comments, I would submit to you that much, unfortunately, but much 
of modern-day psychology and modern-day psychiatry are far afield. They miss the point. It's quite often the case that when one looks at some of the most notable psychologists of the recent few hundred years and one appreciates the basis on which much of psychological testing is founded, it is founded on a complete absence of the fact that man is a spirit. If one seeks only to treat the material part of a human being, one has missed the major point of what the person is. And yet, so often, that seems to be what takes place. The Bible testifies that this, more, this physical part, in the sense of just the frame that's our body, is really only the shell that houses that spirit. Truly, you and I are immortal spirits. Paul highlighted all of that idea, didn't he, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. When there he even made observation to the Thessalonians that they were a threefold constituency. There was their body, there was their soul, and there was their spirit. If we leave out any of the three, we do not have the sum total of a human being. All three are involved. We can see the terribleness then of failing to take into account the power and the reality of that spirit. Return with me then and look at what that implies from another perspective. I have it near the bottom of that screen. We have looked at that whole of man presented in verse 14 of Psalm 139. Might I ask you to turn your attention then briefly to the human brain. Tonight already you have used your brain on so many occasions. As it has heard what I've said, you were able to translate that into an understanding of what was being said. You have perhaps turned in your Bible and thus used the recognition of your mind to know what the book was. You properly turned to the right page. You were able to read the statements that were presented there. The human brain, and I do not say this lightly, but it is the absolutely most marvelous physical thing that I can think of. And I believe even tonight as we will allow some texts of the Bible to touch that subject, it will remind us of truly the greatness of the God whom you and I serve. Revisit Genesis 2 verse 19 with me please. On this opening occasion, with regard to God's creative activity, we know that by that point in the creative efforts of God, he had recognized that it was not good for the man to be alone. That's Genesis 2 verse 18. And in the verses that follow, God took the initiative to fashion a woman from that rib taken from the side of Adam. He fashioned a woman, brought her to the man. And on that occasion, God pronounced or married Adam to Eve. But did you notice in verse 19 what he did just before he made the woman? He caused all the animals to pass before Adam, and Adam gave them their names. Pause to ponder with me what that means about Adam. From time to time, you and I may well have been taught that at one time in the long ago distant past, human beings were nothing more than bent over ape-like cavemen who had very little capacity in their brains and who had very little intelligence and who really were rather unintellectual. What does that verse say about Adam? Here was the man whom he had just made. And yet Adam was bright enough not only to name all those animals, but to remember their names. For he passed down those names to his 
and to his progenitors, to those that would be in that would come after him in generations to follow. Adam was no caveman. That's one of the great falsehoods portrayed to our youngsters, and it's done so in seemingly such innocent ways. There never were any humans that lived on this earth that looked like the pictures we see in those caveman books. It simply never was that way. Adam was as intellectual and as intelligent as you and I are. In fact, in many cases, he was far more than me. To be able to name all those animals and remember their names, and think about the majesty of some of the names that he chose to give them. Certainly one of the things that Adam came to appreciate as he named those animals was that no helpmate for him was in amongst any of them. You see, Adam needed to learn the valiant lesson, and God taught it well. Adam, you are no animal. As those animals were paraded before him, Adam found no helpmate acceptable to him. God fashioned that woman for him. It's thus sad today when some people choose to live like an animal, but in the most basic way, they are not an animal. They never were, they never will be. Notice the distinction then. What was it that distinguished Adam from those animals? Certainly one could say, well, in part it was his brain. He had a very different structure of brain than those animals have. But notice more basically, he was an immortal spirit. He was made in the image and likeness of God, and they weren't. What else does that suggest? Might I suggest this as well? In addition to that text in Genesis 2.19, I believe now with that as an introduction, we might do well to revisit, or at least ponder in passing, the nature of the human brain. As we think about the human brain, it only weighs about three pounds in the average person. And so in a person that weighs 150 pounds or so, the brain is a very small, almost insignificant component of the weight. But yet, think about what the brain is necessary to accomplish. I've listed just a few of the facts that I hope will impress us with this that God has made. In that human brain that is mine and yours, it contains on the order of 10 billion neurons, and each one of those neurons is capable of about 25,000 connections. If you multiply those two numbers together, you reach this conclusion, that your brain and mine has sufficient capacity to store information totaling 60,000 miles of information. Imagine opening a book and stretching out the sentences one after another to reach 60,000 miles. That's enough to go all the way around this earth over two times and have some left over. Can you, can you imagine the intricacy of the human brain in order to be able to do that? It's amazing what one can learn, what one can know, the memories that one can have, the aspects of knowledge that are able to be incorporated into the human brain. That is orders of magnitude above what any animal is capable of doing. But not only that, I've listed the storage capacity. It would seem, based on that, those numbers that I've just listed, that the human brain has a storage capacity of over 100 trillion bits of information. Over 100 trillion bits of information. It has well been noted that if you take the largest library in the world, the human brain has a capacity roughly equivalent to the contents of the largest library in the world. 
it goes without saying that all of us only utilize basically a small capacity of what the brain really is capable of. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. As God has fashioned that brain, notice though that the brain uses only about 20% of the total energy intake of the body. Roughly 15% of every blood pump, every aspect of the blood that's pumped by the heart actually goes to the brain. I believe we could see how important then it is to consider the brain and maybe also this one final statement. Sometimes we can stand somewhat amazed when we stand beside a computer like that one and we realize the speed that it has and the storage capacity that it has not only on its hard disks, but also in the more intermittent memory, the RAM memory. Let me quickly say, that machine can't hold a candle to your brain. Your brain can access information far faster than it. It can store in terms of absolute capacity far more than it can. Might I ask, if that had to be built, what about your brain? Is it logically possible to think the brain just happened but yet it took a man to build that. Friend, evolution is nonsensical. If it takes someone to design, put together the circuits, and build a computer, does it make any sense to think then that something even more complex, something even grander in terms of its capability, came about by itself? Maybe one final thought. How does the brain store information? We know that does it electrically. That is to say, those hard disks ultimately have within them magnetic things, and that's how the information is stored. Does the brain store information magnetically or electrically? The answer is no. And furthermore, scientists today, even the brightest scientists that we know of, have never come close to designing a way to store information the way the brain does it. You see, the brain stores it chemically. Today, scientists have no idea how to do that. I hope we each stand in a bit of amazement as we contemplate the brain and just some of the things we've said about it. But as we contemplate that brain, notice one final set of thoughts that should be, I hope, useful for us to consider about it. In Romans 1, verse 28, near the closing verse of that first chapter in the Roman letter, the statement is therein made that they chose to rebel against God or that as such God turned them over to a reprobate mind. You see, there is thus that aspect of the brain, that aspect of the human being that you and I call consciousness, awareness. And there isn't that one of the major differences between a human being and an animal. You and I can ponder our existence. We know that we are mortal. We can lift our thoughts to the highest degree and we are self-aware. I know who I am and you know who you are. We can ponder the great secrets of the universe. I'd submit to you there's never been a gorilla that looks up and ponders his own self-awareness. There's never been a snake that can look up and ponder the great universe in which he finds himself. That is a part of being made in the image and in the likeness of God. We can have an awareness of who we are and a recognition that something either is or is not right. It would seem that we ought to give some consideration as we close this, the, this part of our lesson tonight at least 
on what it means to discuss this attribute of awareness. Let's look at some Bible examples. In Genesis 2, verse number 20, as we've appreciated a little earlier in the lesson tonight, Adam came to recognize who he was. In the next chapter, when Adam and Eve partook of that forbidden fruit in chapter 3, they had an awareness of what they had done. It wouldn't have made any difference if the zebras that God had made or if the monkeys that he had made had partaken of the forbidden fruit. They wouldn't have known one thing from another. But even the tempter recognized that this creation of God, Adam, was not like any of the others. For what did he say to Eve? He said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt know evil from good. See, Eve had a sense of awareness that no animal ever had had. And as she appreciated that distinction, and Adam had it too, when they partook of that forbidden fruit, they were alienated from God. They were aware of the fact that their relationship to God had fundamentally changed. No animal has any sense of sin. No animal has any sense or appreciation of distance from God. That aspect, again, makes you and me worlds apart from any animal. It somewhat is a troubling thing when I hear someone make reference to human beings as though they are glorified animals. That gives the impression that we are at least on the order of them, maybe slightly higher. There are orders of magnitude between any animal and the lowest human. We aren't animals. For that reason, when the Bible speaks about the human character and the human frame, God has demands and expectations of us. Consider yet another text that points out things like that. In the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, if ever we needed an appreciation of the character of the human mind, what did God expect of those Hebrews? There are over 600 specific laws contained in those books that they were expected to obey. Everything from various and sundry sacrifices and with respect to any sacrifice, when was it to be made? How was it to be offered? Who was to offer it? When was it to be offered? They had to know all those laws. The priest had to be aware of them and execute them correctly. God, you see, had made a creation and he could give them that kind of law and he expected them to follow it. You see, God expects us to live up to the potential that he has placed within us, doesn't he? He does not take lightly for us to live beneath our privileges. But not only that example. In John 8 verse 32, our Savior declared, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. To know the truth, that means to employ the powers of our mind and our brain to read and understand that which God has revealed through His Holy Spirit, to implement that into life, and thus to employ ourselves in proper godly living with respect to those instruction. All of that requires the activity of the human brain, the self-awareness of who we are and what we could be. To say all of that is to implement, of course, very quickly, God's demand of us to know and to understand. I'd submit to you that that knowledge, that understanding, is a direct statement that we're made in His image and in His likeness. One of the latter things I've included on that sheet touches the aspect of memory. I believe each of us cherish the concept of memory. Things that have happened in the former days of our life that have helped to make us who or what we are. 
dear associations that we've known, maybe our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, lessons we learn from them that we shall hold dear through all the days of our life. Maybe the memories that we have of our children when they were growing up and the close feelings we had for them and the special role and the special place they held in our heart. Memories, aren't they wonderful in many cases? But on the other hand, haven't they been great teaching tools? When we made mistakes and we learned valiant lessons from those mistakes and didn't commit those things again. Memory. Notice what is said in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. And young people, this is especially directed to you. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Notice the verb, remember. Play strongly within the confines of your heart and never allow it to seep out the nature of your Creator. And pay homage and glory and proper respect to Him. Remember Him. Notice on other occasions that God, in fact, was very displeased when His creation forgot Him. In Jeremiah 2, verse 32, There God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, My people have forgotten me days without number. God had shed forth so many blessings on ancient Israel, and then He had to admit, My people have forgotten me. That's sad, isn't it? And even today, under the New Testament era, as we noted in one of our lessons points this morning, isn't it a tragedy when some folks forget Christ? They trod underfoot the Son of God. They thus insult the Holy Spirit by outraging Him in the sense of not doing that which they ought to do. We ought to remember the Savior. We ought to remember God. He should be on the forefront of our thinking. And when we do that, Maybe that'll bring us to the closing point of that part of the lesson in Psalm 104. Not only in that chapter, but in the one that precedes it. We notice the psalmist declaring, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his blessings. May we also well remember and ever have in mind to bless the Lord. We've looked tonight so far at the aspect of the brain and the knowledge of the fact of being made in the image and likeness of God. But very briefly, one more aspect of the human frame, and then tonight the lesson will be yours. Might I submit to you we might give at least one passing consideration to that heart that is in your chest. We know quite often that the word heart is used in the Bible to refer to, in fact, the intellect, the mind, the will of man. But that we've already discussed tonight. But it would be at least interesting to give some thought to the heart, the actual blood pump that, that is within the, the chest of each of us. Many scientists through the years have remarked of how wonderful a machine the human heart is. I'd like to highlight some of the machinery of it that I think will be an impressive thing to each of us to consider. That heart that's in your chest... We know that its work is to pump the blood throughout the body. And it just seems to do that so effectively. It seems to do that so effectually. In fact, so effective is it? Look at some of these statistics, if you would. Normally, it beats around 70 times a minute. When you begin to multiply that and to see what those numbers mean, that 70 times a minute will become about 100,000 times every day. Not only that, one can notice that in a given year it'll beat around 42 million times. 
in the process of beating about 42 million times, we notice it pumps about 2,000 gallons of blood per day. Let's pause a moment and think about certain hydraulic pumps that run some of the machinery that we know. Quite often it tears up, and quite often there are difficulties with it. This pump that's in my chest and yours, 2,000 gallons of blood every day. When you start to multiply that out, the numbers seem to become rather staggering. That 2,000 gallons a day becomes about 680,000 gallons of blood every year. That's a significant amount of blood, isn't it? And furthermore, over a lifetime, that multiplies to be somewhere on the order of 600,000 metric tons of blood. It is simply impossible not to be amazed at the effectiveness of that little thing in your chest that's no bigger than roughly your fist. It does all of that work. It does so, so effectively. It does so, so often without difficulty. And when it does give problems, we quickly seek assistance to make certain that if possible that we make it work right again. Some other things on that same sheet. Have you ever thought about the way that the muscles of the heart work? If I want to clasp my hand, I have to voluntarily use my brain to tell those muscles to constrict and do that. Not a one of us has to voluntarily tell our heart to beat. Somehow it does it on its own. About every eight-tenths of a second, a signal is sent from a part of the brain, and it forces a portion of the heart to contract. None of us have to think about and make that happen. It does it by itself. Isn't that wonderful? That that involuntary action is such that, again, it forces that blood throughout the body, and you and I are able to maintain sustenance and livelihood. But not only that, notice this interesting thing about where the heart pumps that blood to. There are blood vessels that run all throughout and that course throughout your body and mine. When you begin to ask about how many blood vessels there are, one reaches the following figure. Many books quote figures much like this one. The heart beats regularly without voluntary control, forcing blood through roughly 100,000 miles of blood vessels. Did you ever think that there was that many blood vessels in your body? But yet, that is another aspect of God's creation for every cell in your body, and there are over 20 trillion of them, has to be serviced by the blood that is pumped by the heart. Every one of them. For you see, without it, that cell will die. And if it's a cell in your liver or a cell in your toe, once it dies, notice it can't perform the function that it needs to perform. And that leads me to make these two final remarks. I mentioned that every cell needs to be serviced. The heart not only pumps the blood to it, but as that blood moves through your body, it carries the waste products away from that cell. And of course, those waste products ultimately exit the body. The body is a marvel of efficiency. It is a marvel in all the considerations of it, and God designed it. I think we can ask the same question again. If the heart evidence is design, and the circulatory system evidence is design, it's simply impossible to think that it just happened. It could not have been that way. I would submit God did it. And in fact, that's what the Apostle Paul affirmed in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18. 
though in that particular text, Paul makes reference to the character of the church and the fact we are all members of the body, that spiritual body, Paul makes his point by making an analogy to the physical body. And in that verse, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, he specifically said, God hath set every member in the body. And his context there is the physical body. Every member has been set. And that verb set takes on the, such an interesting meaning. I've given you its definition. That word set means to arrange, to establish, to fix. Paul thus testified the fact God set that heart in its place. He gave it the capacity and the capability it has. He did the same for the brain and, yea, every other element of the human frame. God orchestrated it. He organized it. He set it forth to accomplish the work that he intended it to do. Perhaps we can see near the close of that lesson, those last verses that I at least wanted you to note. Some other verses in which that same word is used imply directly the notion of something being fixed by another power. First of all, notice if you would in Genesis 1 verse 17. Now remember, we noticed in 1 Corinthians 12, 18 that God set. Well, in, first, in Genesis 1 verse 17, when that same verb is employed, it says there God set the various heavenly bodies in their orbs. Notice he fashioned the greater light the sun, the lesser light the moon. Notice if God set them in their place, Paul used the same word to refer to God's positioning, his direction with respect to the working of the human heart. In Acts 1 verse 7, same words used again. There it's translated as put, but again in the Greek it's the same verb. And on that occasion, Jesus made the statement of God's working with respect to the marvel of His creation, how He set it in place. I'd submit as we draw the lesson tonight to its conclusion that we perhaps can summarize in these very brief ways. We have had a refreshing reminder of just how special the human body is. The human being, that it's not the, that we are not animals. God fashioned it, and as such, we thus ought to appreciate the glory that's contained in it because we are made in the likeness and in the image of God. As we've looked then at the mind, the intellect, the will of man, we appreciated the capacity of that brain. May we thus employ it to understand his will, to implement his will, and thus, with concern for the heart, might we notice that blood pump that's within us and the efficiency that it's able to work. Tonight, I hope that each of us can thus be amazed at the awesomeness of God and that which He has made and what He has fashioned. If He loves us sufficiently to send His Son for us and His design manifests all these things, Ought not we, in loving response to Him, humbly bow before Him and humbly do that which He asks us and commands us to do? Certainly we should. Tonight, if you're not then a member of the body of Christ, if you're not a Christian, don't you feel amiss seeing what God has done and fashioned for you that you to this point have rejected His offer? If we could be of assistance tonight that, that you might become a Christian, Notice it's not our idea, it's not our supposition or our opinion. It's the command of the Lord that says you must believe Him to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must 
proclaim in a verbal way that you do believe by way of confession that He is the Son of God and you must be baptized. If we could be of assistance in accomplishing that with you tonight, we'd be honored to help. If you have become a Christian at some former day, but you no longer really are one because you've walked away from your first love, you're like that prodigal son that thought there was something better somewhere else. The prodigal son, when he was about to find himself in the pig pen, recognized that back home was far better than being there. Don't you want to come back home too? The Lord wants you back at His side. And if we could help in any way by praying on your behalf tonight for strength or praying that God would forgive you of those sins, we'd be more than honored. Would you not please let us know that in a public way while together we stand and while we sing?